0: My favorite story in all of scripture is John chapter four, because it's my story. Um, I believe that I was a used up and broken down, lonely young adult who felt rejected by her religion and often by her peers. And Jesus found me trying really hard to live life dependent upon no one but myself. And through the love of a grandma at the age of 17, after a particularly difficult, rebellious period, he gently and lovingly and quietly broke through my shield of self-protection to bring me new, everlasting life here on this planet and eternally in heaven. And I think that John chapter 4 is full of enough nuggets of gold that I could speak and teach from it every day for the rest of my life. So I want to um, just share some devotional thoughts that I truly have not shared in this manner before. All right. But before we get to John chapter four, we're going to go back to um, Second Chronicles chapter 28. I'm not actually going to read through the scriptures today. You can find this story in Second Chronicles 28 um, because we don't have time. So I just want to tell you the stories and you can journey with me. This is a war-spoiled story that occurs in about 786 B.C. The nation of Israel is divided into two kingdoms. There's the north and the south. And I need you to stick with me for just a few moments. Well, hopefully the whole time, but especially right now, um, because it does get a little bit confusing. The northerners from the town of Samaria invaded the south taking prisoners specifically from the capital of Jerusalem. All of this is right there in Second Chronicles chapter 28. North Samaria, there's a whole bunch more history, but I don't have time to give you that right now. North Samaria goes south to Jerusalem to take captives. And upon the army's return to Samaria, they are met by a prophet of the Lord, an agent of God, who spoke vehemently against this invasion and mistreatment of their fellow God followers. They're both, they're all Israelites, and instructed them to send them back home. The leaders met those arriving from the south From the war, and verse 14 says So the soldiers gave up the prisoners and plunder in the presence of the officials and all the assembly of Israel. The men designated by name took the prisoners from the plunder. They clothed all who were naked. They provided them with clothes and sandals, food and drink, and healing balm. All those who were weak. They put on donkeys, so they took them back to the, they took their, they took them back to, it didn't work out. They took them back, they took the their fellow Israelites back um, to Jericho, the city of Palms, and then they returned to Samaria. So they're in Samaria, they go south to Jerusalem, they take captives. A prophet says, you cannot do this to your fellow man, to your fellow Israelites. And something in their heart changes, and I love that image of the men who were told to do so took clothes from the very plunder and they clothed the naked, and they put feet on, they put sandals on those that that um, on their feet, and they gave them food and they gave them drink, and those that were weak they put upon donkeys and they took them all the way back down south to Jericho, which is about 17 miles from Jerusalem. The compassion. The care that those mighty warriors bestowed upon their captives. I love that they had a change of heart. And that they returned their brothers and sisters all the way back home. So flash forward with me. That's story number one. Flash forward with me to the time of the New Testament. The Jews and the Samaritans are not friends. They do not like each other. Jesus knows this. And yet, to an expert in the law, an expert, an Israelite expert, trying to make sure he fulfilled every letter of the law, Jesus tells this story in Luke chapter 10. Jesus, right, make sure you get that, is talking to a ruler of the Jews, okay, who does not like the Samaritans, right? There once was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem sat high on a hill with Jericho about 17 miles east. Marked by sharp twists and turns through rocks and along cliffs. robbers found victims easily among the travelers. One such traveler not only did the thugs rob, but they beat him up badly, tearing the clothes off of his bruised body and leaving him on the side of the road to die. No worries, though, because as the story goes, a priest happened to be going down to Jericho, down to Jericho, afraid to to break his religious laws by touching the corpse. I mean, those are kind of good intentions, right? The priest passed by the wounded man on the other side of the road. But that's okay, because then along comes a Levite to this exact same place where the man lay lifeless and barely breathing. He, too, didn't want to break any Levitical laws that would make him unclean and unfit for worship. So, like the priest, he passed by untouched and uninvolved on the other side. But that's okay, because here comes another man, and this time it's a Samaritan. And as he traveled the road, he came to that very same place. And this time, the man saw. The Samaritan didn't see a corpse or a human being too dirty to touch. He didn't see a homeless beggar or a poor immigrant or a Jew or a Gentile. The Samaritan saw a wounded soul and took pity on him. He bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine to soothe. And he gently placed this wounded traveler on his very own donkey brought him to an inn cared for him himself and then gave the innkeeper enough money to make sure the man could fully recover right there in his inn and to the expert in the law that jesus was talking to he said jesus says which of these three do you think was a neighbor Now, these two stories take place in three distinct geographical areas. Samaria, Jerusalem, and Jericho. The hatred between the tribes of the Samaritans and the Jews runs long and it runs deep. There are centuries of disdain between them. And yet, in each of these stories, the one in Second Chronicles, the war-spoiled story... And the one in Luke chapter 10, in the midst of that tension, in the midst of that hatred, there is hope and there is healing. And that is what has intrigued me this week. I want to know what motivated the victorious and even vicious army from Samaria to so tenderly care for their captives. I want to know why did the good Samaritan see the wounds of the traveler? That's the verb the Bible uses, see the wounds of the traveler and stop to help. When the deeply devoted religious leaders walked around the messy and the untidy And why? To bring my favorite story into play. Did Jesus have to go to Samaria? So when you turn to John chapter 4, just those very first verses there. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. Verse 3 is really what matters. So he left Judea. Judea. And went back once more to Galilee. Verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria. And that phrase right there, had to go, intrigues me. From the very first time I read this, well, probably not the very first time, but sometime in my early 20s, that is the phrase that has captivated me the most. Jesus had to go. Because Jesus didn't have to go. That's not the way the Jews traveled. They would travel around Samaria to get to Galilee. But the Bible says Jesus had to go, had to travel through there. It's the only time in the Gospels, I think this is true, I've been packing this week and, and I did my research on this, but you could prove me wrong, okay? I believe it's the only time in the Gospels, Gospels that this particular phrase, Jesus had to go occurs. The only other time something similar occurs is in Matthew 16, when Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So again, we've got Samaria. Jesus had to go. And we have Jerusalem. Jesus must go. Now, sit with me. Stick with me for just a few more minutes, okay? Jesus had to go to Samaria. Jesus had to go to Jerusalem. Jesus had to go. Jesus had to go. From Judea, Jesus had to go to Samaria. From the south, Jesus had to go back up to the north. And once he's up north, Jesus has to go back down to Jerusalem, back down to Judea. Are you making a connection? Are you at least a little intrigued? Or are you thinking, Bev, you're really stretching on this one? Why did Jesus have to go along this route from one wounded place to another? That's my question. Because Jesus came to heal our histories. Because Jesus came to heal our histories. He not only came to re he not only came to heal our histories but he came to reorient our future and he does this right in the middle of our present. Let me unpack that for just a moment. Jesus comes into our present situation to heal our history and to then reorient our future towards the kingdom. That's what happened when the prophet back there in 2 Chronicles called out to the victors. The victors hearing the voice of the Lord completely reoriented their their futures and then that of the captives as well, by returning them to the homeland, God entered the present suffering of those captives, of those victors. He entered the present circumstances of both the victors and the victims, and he set their futures on a course for life rather than death. And undoubtedly, it had to be God and the good Samaritan that stopped to bind and heal the wounds of his fellow man. To reset that traveler's, that traveler's future from death to life. In the midst of the messiness, the hands of God reached down into the wounds of the traveler to bring hope and to bring healing and reoriented him from victim to victor. From broken to whole. From dead to to alive now it's possible that i am taking this connection too far because i got to tell you i didn't read this in any book i just got intrigued okay so i i could really be exaggerating the connection but i think that there's a beautiful truth that we find over and over and over again in scripture Sometimes we quote, we talk about how he brings beauty from ashes or we talk about how he makes everything beautiful in his time. And I think that when we quote those kinds of scriptures and when I look at the way these three stories interact today and Jesus' perfect healing of the past and the reorienting of the the future, I think it comes down to that one simple truth. Jesus comes into your present circumstance to heal your history and to reorient, redirect your future to him. And as my family leaves San Diego, I would ask you, my friends, one more time, what is your history that needs healing? Because that's not where God wants to leave you. And I know some of your stories. And I know how beautiful He has reached into your present. And He has reoriented you to life. Where are your hurts or your pains? Your struggles, your stresses, what sin are you hiding or what memory are you trying really hard to suppress? If, if my youth group from Houston first were sitting here, they would say, oh, babe, you're just using different words. Because <laughs> they told them the very same thing in a different way when we left them 15 years ago. That no matter how messy your life has become, or listen, no matter how messy your life is going to get, my life's about to get really messy. (laughs) Jesus desires to come into your life right now, right now into your present, to heal your history. And reorient your future to the kingdom. It's really just another way of saying your best days are before you. I need to tell you one more funny Cook family story. Um, if you were here for baptisms, uh, you heard my son's testimony that has something to do with believing he was about to fall off the side of a cliff when we went hiking in Big Sur and that he was indeed about to die. And when he tells this story, he he tells it like he was all alone, that his family was nowhere to be found, that we um, that he was climbing and he felt himself falling, and and that in that he somehow felt Jesus just lifting him up. And when we hear this story, we go, "This is not true. <laughs> this is not true." We we had a few harrowing moments. We did this one gigantic six-mile hike that we thought would not be that hard. But it takes you through, um, they say it takes you through every zone of California, right? So you go through the mountains and you go through the deserts and and you turn back around to the coast, but you have to like literally climb up some stuff. And um, and it was pretty treacherous. And we think he was five or six years old when he did this. So at one point we get to the very top and we're, we're turning back towards the coast, but it's not getting cool yet. And he just sits down on the ground and he says, I'm not going anywhere. And I said, well, dude, you got two choices you can sit down we can sit down here and die or we can get up and keep walking I mean that's literally how we how I got him off the mountain so I don't know if he thought those were the moments he was gonna die or um we were or we you know and if you if you haven't been to Big Sur you must do it this year but um there's these little one mile hikes that open up into these very private beaches that nobody is at and um and there's fresh water that meets the salt water. And it's, um, I haven't seen a lot of the earth, but it's the most beautiful part of the earth that I have seen. And, um, and so he would climb, you know, a foot off the ground <laughs> on some of, these, some of these rocks. And um, so when he got baptized over here, um, we were FaceTiming because Anna was back in, um, in Pennsylvania so that she could see it. And when I talked to her later that day, she goes, Mom, I, I don't think that really happened." Now, we have a trust here because you're not allowed to tell him, right? There's a sacred trust right now. You're not allowed to tell him that that didn't really happen. But here's why I think it matters. Because somewhere in Matthew's history, he believes God rescued him from death. He believes that. He believes that Jesus saved him in that moment. He believes that he could have died. And that in his present circumstances, Jesus reached down and lifted him up and made him safe for life. Right? So listen to me, church. You might think you're dying. You might think there is no way out of your present circumstances. Right there, right there in your woundedness, right there in your hurt. Right there with your wounds exposed and you laying on the ground, people passing by because you are way too messy to touch. Jesus comes into that present. And he doesn't pour oil and water, he pours his blood on your wounds. And he heals them. And he sets your life. For a future and a hope. Your best days are before you. Because Jesus is alive. As we come to take communion today, we're going to do it my favorite way. Which is by intinction. Because I want you to hear those words. His body broken for you. So that you might have life. His blood spilled for you. So that you might have life. It's the most important thing. It's all that matters. Whatever your history is. He has come to heal. He has come to right where you are. To give you life, not death. Jesus, speak to us in these moments. In your name we pray.